Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast on rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. Those of us hoping for a stronger focus on rural issues at the federal level were encouraged by the recent creation of a new cabinet portfolio for rural economic development. Bernadette Jordan, MP for South Shore St. Margaret's in Nova Scotia, was named Minister of Rural Economic Development on January 14th. The minister has a long track record of involvement in rural issues in her home community, including rural health care. She's currently on a tour of rural Canada, hearing about challenges, and hearing about ideas for positive change. She's hoping to build stronger rural connections for the federal government and use what she's learning from rural Canadians to develop a new rural economic strategy at the federal level. We're pleased to have Bernadette Jordan with us today in studio to discuss what she's hearing on the road and where these insights and suggestions might lead us. And welcome to Rural Spark, Minister. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, one of the best photos I think I've seen this past year, you know what I'm getting at. I know where you're going. <laughs> um, I saw on your, your, you have a ter- terrific social media accounts and it was the expression on your face when you're sitting in the Prime Minister's office and he's asked you to join the cabinet. For those who haven't seen it, maybe we'll put it up on our Facebook page on Rural Spark so they can see it again, but it's priceless. And um, what was going through your mind at that moment? So for anyone who thought that I should have known that, or I knew that I was getting that position, all they have to do is look at that picture. Total shock was, I think, the first thing, <laughs> honor. But the, the picture definitely shows the surprise. You know, at that point, I didn't know that Scott Bryson was leaving cabinet. And, and it couldn't have been a better portfolio. I was really thrilled with the development and with the announcement of this new portfolio. And, but quite surprised, no question. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's a good match for you, like you say. And, oh, I'm and, very rural. Just, yeah, so you're born and raised. Are, I, and I know where you come from in the Bridgewater area, but has that always been home for you? Uh, we moved there. My family moved there when I was nine or 10 years old. So I've never considered myself from anywhere but Nova Scotia. And I've always considered myself from the South Shore. Oh, terrific. Yeah. And, a, and a beautiful part of Canada, of course. Yes. Um, so you mentioned the timing of having a portfolio in, in rural economic development. You said that this, when you when you uh, were asked to join cabinet, you said that this is something that caucus has you know, been increasingly talking about and looking for some more solutions in this area. What do you think is um, the meaning of the timing? Like, why do you think now is an important time to have this seat at the cabinet table? I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, we have, as you said, you know, we've been asking for this type of position for three and a half years from Rural Caucus, recognizing that we were doing a lot of things in rural, but it's it seemed to be that there was fisheries doing things and, and agriculture doing things and business doing things and finance doing things. But what we wanted was somebody to pull it all together. And I think the reason that it came about now is because we just signed all the bilateral agreements on infrastructure funding in the last few months beforehand. So once we had all of those in place, we needed somebody to actually make sure that those things got out the door to rural communities. And that makes a lot of sense. I know um, you're up to something really interesting lately that you bravely perhaps um, started a tour of rural Canada during the Canadian winter. (laughs) During the winter. Um, Yeah. So I I don't know, has any of this resembled scenes from Steve Martin's planes, trains, and automobiles? Yes, it has. (laughs) How has that been going? And is it difficult from a scheduling point of view? Well, I, you know, I have the best team when it comes to pulling this stuff together. We did what we called mega tour, which was I think 11 days straight and we're in we were in Yukon, North, you know, the Northwest Territories, BC, Alberta, Manitoba, and then PEI. So it was everywhere. And Saskatchewan. Yeah, and Saskatchewan. 
And so we were everywhere in, in 11 days and there were some missed flights and having to rejig a few things. And I'm calling the travel agent literally in the airport as I'm boarding saying, I'm not going to make my connection to Prince George. What do I do? He says, don't worry about it. I'll have it figured out by the time you get off the plate in Vancouver. Great. No problem. <laughs> Wonderful. And I'm assuming that your rural hosts are are accommodating too. Well, they recognize too when you're traveling in the winter in, in Canada that there may be some delays. And we had another uh, staff member who... He missed a flight, so he got on another flight and ended up in Calgary when we were going to Manitoba and had to double back to Manitoba and miss the flight to the Paw. And it was just, a, you know, so it's been, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of great stories coming out of that tour. Oh, boy. And <laughs> a lot of great things that have, that we heard right across the country. And we got to take part in, you know, things that we wouldn't normally see when you come from rural Nova Scotia that were really phenomenal. Terrific. And before we get into some of the, uh, the media issues that you've been looking at, um, where are some of the places like in the coming weeks? Are you back on the road to rural Canada? I am. I still have. I have been in every province and territory now except for Nunavut and New Brunswick. So those are the two I still want to make sure I get to. I also want to do a little bit more in Ontario and a bit more in the interior of BC. Um, but for the most part, I have been pretty much everywhere. And why is it important to do this tour? And it's early in your mandate. My mandate, you know, is to develop a rural economic development strategy. And I'm not going to get what I need to do that at a Toronto or Vancouver, you know, or Montreal or even Halifax. I need to get into the rural communities. I need to talk to the people who, who live, work, thrive, grow, you know, run businesses. I need to talk to them and find out what their barriers are and why is... Why are we having difficulties growing rural economies? What is What are some of the barriers? What can we do as a government recognizing that it's not, you know, we're from the government, we're here to help, but we're here to, to solve all your problems. It's, are there barriers that you're facing that we can help with? You know, one of the ones we hear the most about, of course, is rural broadband, mm-hmm. high-speed internet, cell phone coverage. But, you know, it's in rural communities, it was very different because... They take a very much a whole community approach to growth. So they talk about things like social infrastructure as well, like the the need for daycare, the need for affordable housing, housing that's affordable. They talk about health care. So it's very different when you're, when you're talking about economic development, when you start talking about those types of things as well mm-hmm. as barriers to growth. For sure. And when you talk about social infrastructure, uh, one of the fine people that you've been able to talk to uh, very recently, I think, is uh, Leo Bonnell from uh, Clarenville, Newfoundland. And as you know, I think uh, Leo is a bit, a bit of a trailblazer in terms of building age-friendly communities in Canada. I'm assuming that that's a theme that comes up again and again. We do have an aging demographic, and a lot of people talk about that and the challenges and the problems, but there's also a lot of benefits, I think, of having a vibrant, you know, recently retired too community uh, population in your rural community. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things that we've done as well is when we've done our roundtables, we haven't focused just on business. Uh, you know, I mean, we did have roundtables that were seniors to find out about some of the challenges they have because, you know, seniors have so much to offer. And oftentimes I don't think we, we, we tap into that enough. Um, and making sure that they're part of the equation as well has been very important. And, you know, we need age-friendly communities, but we also need to make sure that we attract and keep young people. And, you know, we were, we heard a statistic yesterday that said 97% of young people, the second most important thing they spend money on is their cell phone. And so how do we have them in rural communities if that's one of the most important things they have if they don't have connections? So, you know, there's there's seniors, but there's youth. It's a huge, huge challenge to to figure out all of the challenges that are there and to make sure that we try and address as many as we can. 
Right. And right up there at the top, I think you're hearing again and again about the digital divide in Canada and broadband internet. That, that Massive. Doesn't go away. Every, every community. There hasn't been one yet that hasn't said that. that uh, there was one that said housing would have been their number one issue and then broadband after yeah, that. But, but mostly, most people, it's, mostly it's, it's broadband it's, first. It's broadband because it holds back. And yeah. not just economic. I think people think about, you know, students being able to study and people being able to do business. But there's also a quality of life issue. You know, we know a lot of older adults are online to see the grandkids. It could be in Australia right. or whatever. And, That's right. And it really hurts quality of life when they can't have that online discussion and and you know i mean even things like we're moving more to digital with government in terms of filling out forms online and you know we want to make sure that you're not disadvantaged just because you live in rural canada in terms of how you do your business banking you know in in terms of how you file your taxes how you apply for funding for things you know we're moving in that direction so we have to make sure that rural canadians can have the same access as everybody else Right. And and the last federal budget just recently did peg money for this infrastructure and did uh, set a target of 2030. Now, when you visit communities, are people maybe wondering, like, are we going to fit into that? Uh, What can you tell them about? Well, you know, the target is 100%. So every community will fit into that. And when we talk about 2030, a lot of people say, oh, that's 11 years, that's too long. But I like to clarify that it's 90% by 2021 Mm. and 95% by 2025. And then the last 5% by 2030. And that last 5% is our most remote areas. And it's going to be the ones that are really tough to get to. Uh, You know, you're talking Arctic, you're talking really the far north. Right. And some of those communities, have, I think, have been doing some innovative things and in trying to address their own solutions. Like That's right. We were talking this morning about one example in, in Nova Scotia where people looked at where they see the signal is and where they can get it. They do something interesting there. Yeah. So I think you see some remote communities taking the matter into their own hands. And Well, we're seeing that actually a lot right across the country as people are we're tired of waiting. We need this. So, you know, some municipalities are starting their own ISPs. Some community groups are banding together and starting their own ISPs because they, uh, they know that they've waited long enough. And I think that's one of the things that we always say is that people have said continually, you know, we've heard about this for like 20 years and, you know, we've always heard these targets and no one ever achieves them. And I think, I think the difference is now there's a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. This isn't just about, you know, watching Netflix, although that should be okay too, if that's what you want to do, but it's about, you know, making sure that you have access to, to markets. If you're a business, it's making sure you can use an interact machine. When you take it down to that basic level, where people are afraid to or can't get a connection to use an interact machine or they say, let's just use this and hope the phone doesn't ring because they're still on dial-up. Mm-hmm. You know, those are huge barriers. So, you know, we're hearing that right across the country. So it's, it's you know, it's something that we just definitely have to address. And that's one of the things I think the reason that it's important now and what the difference is between successive governments and what we're doing is we're putting the money in it. Mm-hmm. And that's the big that's the big thing. You know, there's been sporadic money over the last number of years but never enough to get us where we need to be. And we now have, with Budget 2019, we've got up to $6 billion to leverage. You know, $1.7 billion from the government and then leveraging more from, you know, with CRTC, with regards to the infrastructure bank, with regards to private stakeholders, with changes we made in the fall economic statement that allows the big telcos, we the accelerated capital cost allowance, allows them now to have more money to put into rural communities. That was one of the things we did in the fall. So Bell, for example, was going to connect, I think it was 800,000 households. But because of the accelerated capital cost allowance, they can now connect 1.2 million. 
So that's made a huge difference. So it's all of those things together. It's no one size fits all approach. There's going to have to be lots of working together with our provincial and territorial partners, with indigenous groups, with the telcos, with community groups, Mm -hmm. with municipalities. You know, I mean, we're seeing now municipalities who see this as part of their role and, you know, other municipalities who don't, but there's, there are others that say, you know, it's a service that we need to offer. We need to keep our, our people here and this is what we're going to have to do. And they're putting money on the table to do it. Right. And connected to that whole digital discussion, of course, is the broader issue of talent recruitment and retention in rural Canada. I'm sure you're hearing about it again and again as you go on your tour, but are you also, are you, are you coming across some interesting ideas and solutions that people are suggesting or seeing some things happen? You know, when we had, we've actually had some good success in Atlantic Canada with the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program, which was employer-driven, basically allowing for immigration, uh, easier access to immigration for people who are highly skilled, who we can't we don't have access to in Atlantic Canada. It's been a a very big success. And because of that, we now have rural immigration pilots in other parts of the country that that are modeled after that. So it started out in Atlantic Canada, recognizing our challenge with, with workers. And, you know, I mean, but the thing is too, is that, you know, we want, we want people to come home. We, We want people who want to live in rural Canada to be able to do that. And that's part of the challenge as well. You know, I mean, I have three children myself, two of them live in cities, one is hell-bent and determined she's staying in, in our community, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, so with her it was, and I think this is a culture shift, with her it was a matter of I can't get a job so I have to leave to I want to stay so what can I do? And mm-hmm. and that's that's been a whole different way of thinking with a lot of young people that I've spoken to across the country. It's like, well, we don't want to leave. So we found, you know, what was necessary here and we're, we're working towards that. And skilled trades is a huge thing in rural communities that they need. You know, that, that uh, we see a, a, a huge shift in, in how much skilled trade is needed in, in rural communities. Yeah, and we have one of our three, too, uh, is in, in Guysboro, Nova Scotia, and she moved back there from out west and, um, you know, is doing social media consulting, which you can do, you know, as which long you as you have, as as long long you have, have a good connection. <laughs> as long as you have a good connection. Yeah, so I think some of these young people are determined, <clears throat> and they're going to see what they can do in the rural communities and mm-hmm. contribute to that quality of life, which is uh, which is terrific. So as you're traveling and you're, you're gathering all these great stories and insights and suggestions, and I think now you're also doing a, a bit of an online. People can feed in there. People can to, feed in through the online consultation. Yes. Yeah, so in, it's through Infrastructure Canada. They can uh, just log in and find it there if they have internet. <laughs> uh, you know, but that's one of the reasons we're traveling too. They can email, you if they they can email yeah. us, and we can make sure that they get the they may, they get the link. But that's one of the things. That's one of the reasons we're traveling and trying to get out to as many places, doing as much as we can in in rural media to make sure that people know that we're out there. We're we're asking these questions so that they can give us feedback because it's really important that we hear from as many people as possible and in as many rural communities and it's interesting because you know I have been in a couple of cities where I've met with like uh, so for example I was with the Rural Ontario Municipalities Association in Toronto so I was in Toronto but I was meeting with all the rural Mm -hmm. municipalities and I was talking to people in, in one city I won't say which one it was and they said well you know we just think that this whole internet thing is just a way for telcos to take you know federal funding and I said and you have internet correct and they yeah. said, yeah, I said, so could you live for two days without it yeah. or without access to high speed? And it was a company that actually, uh, well, the guy I was talking to, he did a lot of uh, really technical work online. And I said, what if you couldn't download your program? Mm-hmm. But he didn't think of it like that because he's so used to having it, right? And so, you know, I mean, we have to make sure people understand the reason for the need. When we have 100% of cities pretty much connected, urban areas connected, but only 40% in rural Canada, 
with high speed. Like a lot of people have a connection. Yeah. But it's not good enough. It's It's like I said yesterday, you know, at eight o'clock at home, I can't, I can't do anything online. It it just, there's so many people on that it it takes up all the bandwidth and we have, it's like, okay, well I could do this if I really wanted to watch in slow motion something. (laughs) But a lot of people might think that it's really about these tech businesses and stuff, but you mentioned at this panel you were on yesterday, I saw you mentioned about, you know, uh, fishermen in Barrington and they're dealing with China. Exactly. And sometimes they can't, in broadband internet, they can't even get a cell signal. They can't get a cell signal. So it's in our traditional industries too and in forestry as well. Right. And you know, I mean, so, so the argument that, well, if you choose to live in rural communities, you kind of have to take the bad with the good. Mm -hmm. If that's what you want, if that's how the way of life you want, then you have to take some of the you know the challenges that go with it but but these are industries that have been around for a hundred years or more yeah and you know they should have the same ability to scale up to grow to export as anybody else and you know i mean i have as as you know i have like probably one of the largest lobster fishing industries in the world Mm -hmm. in my riding (laughs) and you know it's critical that they have access to those markets overseas and it's critical that they are able to make those calls fill those orders as soon as that catch is landed lobster is a live product and time is of the timing is everything so you know but it's it's not just that it was i was in um, rural newfoundland and a forestry guy that I was talking to there was telling me that, you know, with technology, he could, you know, he can look at a tree, he can figure out how many two by fours are in it. He can, he can figure out what the best way to cut it. He should, should he leave it? What would it be like in four years time? But he doesn't have the connection yeah. to get that, you know, and he says it's, it's, it's about doing business, you know, better. It's about being more sustainable. It's about making sure that we're making the best of our natural resources. And so it's, it's a, it's a lot bigger picture than a lot of people, you know, I mean, I heard yesterday when I was on the panel yesterday, well, you know, so if somebody wants to watch Netflix and it's like, yeah, yeah you know what, they should be yeah. able to watch Netflix if they want, that. but it's a lot yeah. more than that. Yeah, for sure. So all these great ideas, stories that you're hearing and people are submitting online, what's going to happen with it (laughs) and how quickly, what's the timeline like? And might we, uh, for example, might we see some of these insights reflected in the uh, policy platform for the Liberals in the upcoming election? So I I don't know about the platform. I mean, I have to focus on what we're doing now and what we're trying to get out the door now as soon as we can. And that's what I'm focusing on. We have... Uh, with the budget, one of the things that we did was we increased, we had the Connect to Innovate program, which was $500 million in the budget in 2016. Of course, that was at capacity very quickly. And we had a lot of good applications that did not get funding because we, we uh, didn't have enough set aside for it. So we have topped that funding up. So that will get out the doors as, as soon as possible. With regards to the Rural Economic Development Strategy, I mean, we're, we're hoping to have something ready to go by June. You know, we hit the ground running on this. This is... <laughs> That sets six months from from start to delivery. It will be a whole of government approach because, you know, there isn't any department that is not touched by rural. You know, I, I can't think of anything, whether it's, you know, housing, business, agriculture, fisheries, seniors, just going to labor. Every department has a rural component. Uh, status of women. You know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I sit around the cabinet table and I'm talking about rural and they're saying, well, you know, rural women are impacted this way. So it, it's one of those things that, you know, you have to take all of it into account. So we are looking at, at how can we go forward, making sure that everyone's not working in silos and everyone's not working, you know, at cross purposes, but that we're, we're bringing it all together. As I'm, I'm often heard saying, it's like, it's a giant puzzle and lots of pieces. And I'm the one that has to put that puzzle together. Good. 
good. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're the right woman for the job, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Minister, for being with us today. Uh, we're going to keep an eye on how this strategy takes shape. And, uh, and I'd be happy to come back and, yeah, and, and share you know, what sure. you're, where, where we're going yes. next. And uh, as you meet some of these uh, terrific people with their stories across Canada, send them our way. And we'll have some I of them as our happy guests to on do Rural that. Spark. Because yeah. uh, we do think that rural communities can learn from each other. That's part of the reason why we're doing this. Well, that's this. part of and, what we're hearing, too. And one of the things that is really interesting is like the Smart Cities Challenge. I'm sure that you've heard about that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rural communities who are finalists in that. And when I see some of the projects, I'm going, well, if this works in right. the Paw, Manitoba, could it work in, you know, Happy Valley, Goose Bay, Labrador? Yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah. <laughs> those are the kinds of yeah. things that so are Yeah, so we're really trying important. to bring some of those uh, stories together Excellent. and share so that we can see where there's opportunities to scale up and um, replicate some things and learn lessons learned. Like yes. we go into those pitfalls once, we don't need to go into again. So. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Yeah, so that's what we're trying to do. So thank you so much again for being here with us today. And we will follow up and we'll have you back. Okay, great. Thanks, Ellen. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week on Rural Spark. Our team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music is by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.